Hi, Liz. Hi, Olivia. How you doing? I'm doing great. Welcome to Women, Magic, and Power. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for listening. Today, we have a great episode for you. Our guest's name is Leah Fay. Leah is a witch and a director and a filmmaker and an artist and has a deep spiritual life. So here we go. Enjoy. Welcome, Leah. Hi. Hi, Leah. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Hello. It's nice to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. We're so happy to have you. We really are. So, Leah, we like to start with getting to know a little bit about where our guests come from. So can you tell us about where you grew up and how you grew up? Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, I'm Leah Fay. I use all pronouns. Um, and I was raised in a household where I was raised a witch. That word wasn't used most of my life growing up. It was uh, something that I was called a lot in school uh, when I was being bullied. So I actually really didn't like being called a witch for a very long time. Well, that's natural, right? Mm-hmm. Who could blame you? And the fact that anything that has to do with witchcraft has been labeled as evil throughout the years and centuries, it makes total sense that you would feel like this was something bad and you would want to mm-hmm. hide it. So let me let me give like a little bit of history first. I think that the context is kind of important for describing how I got to how I identify. Um, and that's that my mom raised me pretty Wiccan but not strictly Wiccan. Uh, She was, when she was pregnant with me, she was getting her master's degree from the University of Chicago studying religious studies with a concentration in Celtic paganism. And that's my, my ethnic heritage is all Welsh, Scottish, Irish, Celtic, um, British Isles. Uh, And so I was raised with the words, we meditate, we go to, moon meditation group it's full moon meditation group tonight it's new moon meditation group tonight i was raised celebrating you know the the pagan holidays i I was raised celebrating all of the equinoxes and the solstices we didn't really you know i had santa growing up but as soon as i was like too old for santa we really stopped doing christmas and and we really always called it the solstice growing up like you know the 21st or the 22nd whenever it falls was a day that my mom would like do a solstice meditation and then Christmas on the December 25th kind of stopped when I stopped believing in Santa. Um, And my mom, I have a very distinct memory of being in like first or maybe kindergarten, first grade or kindergarten. And my mom just being like, Hey sweetie, if anybody at school asks you what religion you are, just tell them you're Buddhist. (laughs) And me going, okay, we're Buddhist. Um, And that wasn't, a lie. I was also raised with a lot of Buddhist philosophy in my house. It's interesting that your mom thought that Buddhism was more palatable to folks than being a Wiccan. Yeah, it is. It's also interesting, though, because it's the only kind of pagan, not the only, I don't want to say only, it's one of the very few pagan spiritualities that's actually protected by the United States Supreme Court. And so... I have I have some family members that are Unitarian Wiccans and and that's very that word is very important to them 
so that they feel protected in their religious freedoms. But yeah, so I, I was raised thinking I was a Buddhist and then realizing in college, wait a second, <laughs> mom, am I a witch? And her going, yeah, haven't you been paying attention? <laughs> Yeah, no, I was I was going through puberty and being bullied every day. The funny thing is, is that we, you know, we we try. We my mom really didn't want me to be like single dad. I grew up. I moved from the south side of Chicago to rural North Carolina when I was thirteen, and my neighborhood in Chicago was very Catholic. And then North Carolina is North Carolina. I don't think I have to explain the state of the Southern United States to anybody. Um, and so, you know, we were pretty protective of it. I wasn't very open with my beliefs. Um, for a long time. So when people, when we moved to the South, people started like inviting us to church. Like, you know, your neighbors knock on your door and they say, hi, welcome to the neighborhood. What church do you go to? And we would be like, oh, well, we're not Christian. And then their next question would be like, oh, are you Catholic? Which is a whole other can of worms I'm not opening. And we'd be like, no, we're not Catholic. And they'd be like, oh, are you? And then, then they would they'd get in real close and they'd whisper, are you? Jewish, which is like, that's rude. That's offensive. That's anti-Semitic. Nope, we're not Jewish, unfortunately. Thank you for asking. And then they'd be like, oh, oh, well, what, well, what are you? <laughs> and we'd just be like, we're Buddhist. Um, and then I started getting called, uh, I, I, the one that, the one that sticks out in my memory the most is getting called a voodoo, is to, getting called a voodooist and people thinking that I practiced voodoo. Did all these experiences make you retreat from your spiritual practice? Oh, yes, absolutely. What a fantastic question. Yes, yes, it did. I I stopped engaging with spirituality from the ages of about 16 to like 21. Oh. Yeah, I, I just became a full atheist, started reading Camus, became a huge existentialist. I was also a goth in the South, so it wasn't a far cry. <laughs> growing up for me to just be like, you know, I believe in nothing. Everything is entropy. Well, we all love a little existentialist entropy. How did you re-engage? That's a really good question. How did I re-engage? I started meditating again. I I was at conservatory uh, for college. I, I studied filmmaking and theater uh, in conservatory and it was very stressful. It was a very stressful program that I was in. And I, I just fell back on the meditations that my mom taught me, you know, one full moon. I was like, I feel like crap. I'm going to go buy myself a pretty candle <laughs> at the craft store. Michael's was Mecca for me growing up <laughs> for good candles. Cause we, uh, we didn't have witch shops in North Carolina until like later in my life. Um, so we had to get all of our black candles during Halloween only. I'm sure. <laughs> we had to stock up a year's worth of black candles on Halloween. But yeah, I, I you know, one day I, I just was feeling like crap and I, I didn't want to feel like crap anymore. So I went to Michael's and I bought myself a really pretty sparkly purple candle and I did a full moon meditation like I used to do growing up. And I was, that was the day that I was like, oh wait, I'm this is witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> so were you still in North Carolina when you were in college? Yeah, no, I, I so I went to North Carolina. I went to the only state funded arts conservatory in the country. Um, so it was state school, but it was still a conservatory program, which uh, I wasn't far from home, but I was far enough to like have, you know, space and independence and the things that you want from a typical college experience. And, it, it, you know, even though I was at arts at art school, where you think that a lot of those things are more easy to explore, uh, it's still the South. It was still the South. So is this when you started owning your identity as a witch? Yeah. 
I started, when I realized, when I, you know, I'm, I was 21, I realized what was, you know, what, how the context in which I grew up. And I was like, I don't want this to be a secret anymore. I do want this to be part of my identity, my art, right? Sure, Which yeah. I was deeply engaged with and practicing at the time, my, my crafts as an artist. And and because I also grew up with a lot of folklore, um, I grew up with like all of the Greek mythology, all of the Irish mythology. I grew up with books about goddesses from all of the different cultures. And that was really informing the literature that I liked to engage with and then the stories that I wanted to tell as a storyteller. So I stopped. I didn't hide it anymore. I was pretty open about it. And, you know, my friends at the time, very cool about it. People started asking me to read tarot cards for them because it's something I've been doing my whole life that I stopped for a few years when I had that existentialist uh, period of time. Um, But that's when I started kind of really reclaiming and being empowered about it. So most people in America, I would think, believe that witch and Wiccan are the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I do want to say that I don't identify as a Wiccan. Like, that's not the word that I use to describe my spirituality. Um, But I, uh, when I talk to people about it, when people are like, what do you mean you're a witch? Um, Which is a word that I really only started using, like, after I really came back to it, because it was starting to kind of become a little more popular more people were talking about it. Um, I was reclaiming the fact that I was bullied with that word so much. And I was like, you know what? I am. That, that's fine. But it's a bit of a theatrical word. I, you know, it has an effect. It, it is to start a conversation. I really just see myself as somebody who engages with meditation practices, the collective unconscious. I have, so I have a podcast with my mom called Finding Our Minds, little self-plug, sorry. <laughs> Plug away. Yeah. Uh, and and she's, a, she's a therapist now. Uh, she's a social worker and an academic and a researcher. And she's a post-Jungian social worker, uh, psychotherapist. And so we talk a lot about alternate forms of um, consciousness uh, and tapping into uh, altered states of consciousness through meditation and spirituality is one of the ways people do that. All, all spiritualities is the way one is the way a lot of people do that. So I, I, I like to say that I just engage in that behavior. I engage in ritualistic behavior to tap into altered states of consciousness to help myself feel more connected with the world around me and to manifest things in my life. That's fantastic. I, um, am very interested. We need to listen to this podcast to learn more, but I'm intrigued. You were saying reclaiming this identity, and I want to know how did that feel reclaiming the identity? It felt really well. So I'm also queer, and I'm also non-binary, gender fluid, <laughs> and so reclaiming, and I'm also uh, polyamorous as a as a sexual sexual identity, and so like reclaiming my identity starts at 21, and you know, kind of lifelong journey. But I would say that I feel like way more comfortable with it as of this year, so about 11 years of figuring out who I am after spending 11 years in the South of, you know, being bullied into several different kinds of closets. And the spirituality really was a big part of it, but there was Mm -hmm. always something that felt very, Wicca especially, which was very much a, like a, not how I identified always, but was the big kind of presence of how I understood my spirituality for a long time Mm. um, is very into the divine feminine. 
right? These communities are very, very into the divine feminine, which is awesome and powerful. And I am a huge feminist and I love it. But there was always something that wasn't sitting right with me because I don't identify fully as a woman, as a female, right? I, I am gender fluid. I, I am non-binary. There is more. Yeah, and the programming that we've been receiving, right? It's so binary. So it's interesting to hear you talk about how even growing up in a very feminist um, setting or religion actually affected you as well in your identity. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and I don't, and and I think that there's so much in between the feminine and the masculine. Right, as a non-binary person, I, I really push back against that femininity and masculinity exist on a binary. I think that they are archetypes, and so that's a really good question about where I start exploring after mm-hmm. that. You know, I'm I'm in conservatory. My mother is a post-Jungian psychotherapist. Wow, I am exploring all of these identities of myself. Um, I really, really started throwing myself into into archetype studies of folklore. Mm-hmm. I really started throwing myself into just studying folklore on my own as much as I possibly could. Um, I am a theater maker uh, my, and a filmmaker. My, my occupation is a director, so I direct theater and film productions. Uh, and I use those archetypes to figure out the story I'm trying to tell. Mm. I think my art is a really big part of how I was beginning to reclaim that at the time and and my feminism because uh, I you know I am a huge feminist well these binary archetypes have such a huge influence on our conscious and subconscious that sometimes we don't even really know who we are when we're faced with this kind of programming mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely I think and it took me a long time to come out to myself. I'm one of those gays that everyone was like, oh, honey, we know. We're so happy you found out, but we know. <laughs> but it really took, it took the pandemic and me existing outside of the male gaze and inside of my own home for a year to be like, oh my God, these are all the masks that I'm wearing all the time. And when I take them off, I'm, this is who I actually am. What a um, gift. And, and, you know, my, my spirituality helped me a lot with it. And it, and it also was hard. I can imagine. It all, I also had to rethink a lot of things because, like, I was really raised with a connection to the divine goddess. And I was like, you know, this hasn't always served me. There's always been other kinds of archetypes that feel way more powerful to me that I want to explore. And so the archetypical god that I do a lot of meditations and work with a lot now is Dionysus because I'm a theater maker. I am I am a filmmaker. I am an artist. I believe in uh, deeply the importance of catharsis. And theater theater itself is a very spiritual art. That's true. You know, the Greeks theater festivals were spiritual events as well as social events. And and I think that there's a lot about the connection that people find together. And my I talk about this a lot in my podcast with my mom, the connections that humans have that that are always seem a little spiritual when you have a spiritual connection with somebody, when you have like an otherworldly moment with somebody, when you feel like you're communicating without speaking, all of that that exists in the therapy space is also conversations we have in the performance space when we're talking about connecting with an audience and with their fellow performers. Totally. You need authenticity in order Mm -hmm. to have a powerful connection Mm -hmm. no matter what. Yeah. And we talk a lot in the theater world about finding the moments of truth with your scene partners, with your acting partners, where you're both really just so dropped into the character and the story that you're telling that you do forget that you're Leah on stage and you are Hedda Gabler. I'm not an actor and I've never played a gambler. 
here just to... <laughs> I'm using my own name in this example. I don't care. <laughs> but this is true, right? You have to have these kinds of connections to have transcendent experiences, whether it's in the therapy space mm-hmm. or the spiritual space or the performance space. They're all points of connection and transcendence. Mm-hmm. It really solidified my deep belief. And, and this is a, a very important moral that I hold that as artists, we have a real responsibility to provide our audience with a sense of catharsis. Mm. And if we're not providing our audience with a sense of catharsis, that has to be intentional and to serve a purpose for the art that we're exploring and not malicious. I really dislike art that is malicious towards its audience. You know, and and um, that's a, that's comes from a place of privilege, right? I'm a, I'm a white artist. I am assigned female at birth and do have feminine presenting privilege in this world. Um, so, like, there are artists who are angry and have very valid anger that they need to express and stories that they need to express, especially in America, especially right now. Mm. But pretentious theater that is Brechtian and mad at its audience is is a little it's a little like okay what catharsis are we providing from this like what are we taking from this how are we gonna how are we gonna move past this piece of work to enact change in our lives yeah and we all know how much art can influence change so it's so important what you're doing tell us a little bit about what you're working on now yeah absolutely so i'm in very 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 long pre-production for my first feature film and it's been going on a while because of the strikes. <laughs> uh, so we're not guaranteed to be able to film it and release it because of what's going on with the strikes. But, I, we're, but I'm working towards it. It's a project I've been working on te- for 10 years. Um, and, you know, the piece of work that I'm working on, and I, I can't talk too much about it, but the piece of work that I'm working on is something that has a larger message that I think is very important. And it's been interesting to work with the piece of art as the message has continued to say the same, but I've been working on it for 10 years, but it's still a necessary message. But I have changed since beginning to work on this art. And so the story itself has changed since I begin, I've begun to work on this art. You know, I started working on this project thinking I was a cisgendered straight woman. <laughs> and now I am not that. <laughs> now I am a non-binary pansexual polyamorous witch. That's how I introduced myself on my TikTok. That's quite a journey. Was it terrifying to finally come out and, you know, show your true identity? Quite the opposite. I was able to come to where I am because I have crafted a social environment for myself that is incredibly safe and supportive. I did not have that in North Carolina. I did not have a sense of community in North Carolina. Even in college, I didn't have a very healthy sense of community. I have a pretty angry relationship with my experience in college because I think it fostered a very competitive and unhealthy environment for the artists. And I didn't really have safe community or an understanding of what safe community could look like until I moved to New York, uh, which was about 10 years ago. Because of the work that I've been doing for 10 years in New York, fostering community, fostering a very large friend group, And then when the pandemic hit and lockdown hit and the only people I was interacting with were my community that I grew, that's when I was able to finally like realize all of these things about myself that I haven't been allowing myself to access. It's also a very classic queer experience to be like, oh, I I loved all of these things in a totally straight way and wasn't lying to myself at all. Like my six, my sweet 16, my sweet 16, I begged my parents to let me go to Rocky Horror Picture Show with my friends. Very straight, <laughs> very heterosexual. 
I, I once did a, a drag performance as Freddie Mercury lip syncing the entirety of Bohemian Rhapsody in a very heterosexual way. <laughs> as one does. As one does. Um, and so when I did come out, all of my friends were kind of like, yeah, honey, I'm happy for you. But yeah, hun, we we know. Well, and isn't it horrifying the way that we hide from our own selves? Horrifying. <laughs> horrifying i dealt with so much imposter syndrome am i gay enough am i non-binary enough am i trans enough you know especially because i'm i'm a non-binary person who doesn't want to medically transition um which is a decision i've made for myself maybe that'll change in the future but i'm pretty happy with with where i'm at with my identity and presentation right now um and and you can you can really tell yourself that that you're lying for attention um do people really give you a hard time about not transitioning when i'm Talking to straight people, yes. When I'm in my queer circles, never. Amazing how people are so quick to judge when we're all struggling with our own bodies. Right, right. And I do experience gender dysphoria, right? I have I have issues looking in the mirror sometimes, but I'm also, you know, assigned female at birth, raised, socialized a woman. All of us have issues with our bodies. <laughs> All of us do. Every, every, I don't know a single person who was assigned female at birth who didn't grow up hating hating what they look like in the mirror. And so unpacking the... the And I, I have struggles with um, anorexia and eating disorders. And so unpack, unpacking, it's like a web. It's like a tangled web. And for a long time, I really felt like I was responsible to being perfectly articulate with what I was going through in order for what I was going through to be a valid experience. And I'm letting go of that now. And my spirituality helps me let go of that now. I also have, you know, an anxiety disorder. And meditation has really provided me an ability to self-regulate that a lot of people don't have. And that's so important, right? Because we're walking around like crazy maniacs with all these thoughts in our head. And so to meditate and be able to shed all those layers and focus on what matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. I meditate very regularly. Um, and then I do deeper, more imaginative meditations less regularly than I want to. I probably should do it a little more. But yeah, it really helps. It really, really helps. And I think it's I think I really, you know, a couple of months before and I, I when I say I came out, I really like to say that I came out to myself. Um, a couple of months before I came out to myself, I did a large Halloween, not a large, I did a involved Halloween ritual with two very close friends of mine who are also queer and non-binary. And we were just meditating together. We acknowledged that Halloween is a new year and thought about the things that we wanted to work on. Over the year, we opened the circle in a very Wiccan way because that's how we learned how to open circles and start a ritualized meditation with each other. You know, talked a little bit about what we wanted to see for the next year. And then we just all sat in silence together and meditated on the things that we wanted to do. And I had unprompted this imaginative vision of me breaking out of being bound. Like I, I saw myself bound and by a large body of water and just letting go of these ropes that were binding me. And then like jumping into the water and swimming away and being free. And then like a couple months right after that, I came out. And I really think that that was when it started. That's what I tapped into that helped me get out of there. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds like you tapped into some kind of past life memory there sure. as well. You know, what's very interesting is how many people in, in our spiritual communities are certain that they've had past lives where they were victims of a witch hunt. I think that that's, 
a very valid feeling to have. Uh, but I also am a huge proponent that especially white femmes need to acknowledge that we also have ancestors who probably perpetuate. Sure, yeah. Um, and I don't think that our communities kind of acknowledge that enough. So I, I, I do shy away from being like, maybe this was a past life where I was like some kind of witch being hunted and, and I broke free or I was just tapping into my deep unconscious of feeling very, I think the past life was this life, my past, Leah's past of, of feeling very bound and hidden and having to wear a lot of masks and, and really confine myself. Um, well, and that feeling of breaking free is mm-hmm. super exhilarating, mm-hmm. but also incredibly yeah. terrifying. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's the feeling of free fall, which is horrible. I hate roller coasters. <laughs> Tower of Terror, not me, fam. No. And, and to really decide to live your life authentically is a real big feeling of free fall. Yeah, totally. Because stepping out of this wonderful structure that we build for ourselves to, you know, come out as to our true authentic selves can be nerve wracking. So it's such a um, brave moment to step out. Yeah. Another thing that we say in theater is if you're scared, you're doing it right. Art is very vulnerable. Spiritual spaces are very vulnerable. And relationships are, if you're doing it right, very vulnerable. You can totally put yourself in a gilded cage of safety and security and never leave it and stunt your own growth that way. And a lot of people in our country do that. And I I say country just because I'm not very well-traveled and I haven't lived in other cultures. So I try to just speak on the culture that I knew and grew up in. And I think America has like a sickness of the heart of really prioritizing security over authenticity. And I think it's killing us. That's true. Um, and I think that being scared to be vulnerable is very, very important. And we need more structures to allow people to do that. We need more structures to allow that to be those scary safe, which is why like these drag bands horrible, so bad, right? That's how a lot of people in my communities figure out a lot about themselves. I think that that's also another part of my spirituality that's very important to me. Performance is a very big part of my spirituality. I have a little ritual of every time I walk into a theater, I say, hail Dionysus. Um, or every time I walk onto a stage, I just like acknowledge like that that's like a function that I try to serve to my communities. And, and so safe spaces to explore, safe spaces to make weird art, bad art, even the angry art that I don't necessarily like, it has a right to exist and should if it's there. Um, and all of that is, I think, very, very important and very spiritual. To totally. Me. That makes sense. It's such a safe and authentic place that it has to be powerful and spiritual. It makes a lot of sense because in order to have you know, real spiritual and transcendent experiences, you have to be in a place where you feel safe being vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your relationship with ritual, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. say you have these little rituals when you walk into a theater, but at the same time, you seem to be very happy doing more sort of freeform kind of things. And would you say that specific rituals are important to your spirituality? That's a very great question. No. And that's by design. My mom is really into ritual. And when she's sharing her spirituality with people, which she only recently started doing herself, I mean, more recent than me, because she's still in North Carolina. She's still in rural North Carolina. And so 
it's only been very recent that people are open to talking to her about it. And now she has a tarot club. Shout out to the tarot club. Shout out to the witches of Winterville, um, where they, you know, they do tarot readings and they talk about like instincts that they've had and kind of keep each other honest on like, are, are these perhaps a little prophetic or these tapped into something instincts. And when they read tarot, my mom is really big on giving people ritual. She thinks it's very, very important to the experience. And I, and I don't disagree with her. I go about it completely differently. <laughs> I, when I have been, and I use the word converting, I have converted a lot of people to, to, <laughs> to seeing the world the way I see it. When I'm deprogramming people, I have a lot of people in my life who are former fundamentalist Christians who come to me seeking help exploring this kind of alternate spirituality in a way that's very safe. And I find that, especially when I'm working with those people whose only experience with religion is heavily prescriptive, heavily patriarchal, heavily ritualized, the thing that I start unpacking with people first is the only rules are the ones that serve you and it's kind of all made up. What we're tapping into here is vulnerable and sacred and beautiful, but it's not precious Mm -hmm. it's not dangerous it's not going to hurt us if we do it wrong if you open the circle wrong you're not going to get cursed there's no satan on your back waiting for you to mess up um and so i like to be very playful i you know i worship dionysus chaotic god (laughs) (laughs) that's a really interesting take on it because ritual does serve a purpose right it can lend us comfort and it Mm -hmm. can help us focus, but when we get too attached to the ritual as opposed to where the ritual is trying to get us, that can become really problematic. Yeah. And there there are some rituals that I still do follow, right? I work with like the elements, right? You know, whenever I'm trying, whenever I'm about to do a large meditation, I find myself in the very Wiccan way opening the circle Um, I think that I'm going to probably keep that my whole life, but I do it differently with different people, right? You know, if I'm doing it with, with my non-binary queer witch group, we're, you know, drawing a pentagram and inviting in the elements in order and then inviting in all of the gods and inviting in all of the below. But if I'm doing it with like my friend who was a former roommate and asked me once, uh, his mom came to visit our apartment he just like really wanted to get the energy out because he doesn't have a great relationship with his mom. And he was like, you know, that Leah, I'm not usually this kind of person, but is there just like something we can do? Is there just like some witchy thing we can do to get my mom's energy out of this apartment? And I was like, he's not going to sit here and open the circle <laughs> with me and, and invite the air and the fire and, and all of that. So we sat and instead of doing that, we tapped into meditative breathing. I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to open the circle in this way. And you can either just continue in this breathing space or you can do this with me. And then instead of drawing a pentagram, we drew a doorway. Or sometimes I'll tell people to draw a key, right? Something that's just opening. And, and, then, and then we invite, if not the air, we invite the concept of intellect, the concept of passion, right? So I, and I change it up for people. And then I keep it silly and I keep it fun. And so instead of like, oh, 
friends, mothers, spirits, get away. You know, we sprinkled salt water all across the apartment and screamed. And I'm going to cuss. I'm sorry. We screamed, bitch, be gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, bitch, be gone. (laughs) We were just like, bitch, be gone. Bitch, be gone. Bitch, be gone. And it was fun and it was playful. And it it made the change that we needed it to make. Yeah. But then again, you know, the comfort of these rituals that we know and are Absolutely. For lack of a better word, again, comforting, but allow us to mm-hmm. move and get to where we need to get and evolve in our spirituality so that it serves a purpose for us. When you're working with these folks that come from heavy, heavily ritualized religious spaces, do you think that they yeah. miss the comfort of specific ritual? So in my experience, no. And I think in my mom's experience, yes. And I think that that is a generational divide. Oh. Uh, I think that my generation and younger, so I'm a millennial. So my generation, and I have a lot of Gen Z friends. And I have friends with Gen Alpha kids, but I, I don't do practice spirituality with them. Uh, but I, so I'm a millennial and a lot of my friends are Gen Z. I, I find that we in my circles are really pushing back against a lot of concepts that we were taught were necessary growing up. And I find that they are very scared of the ritual and want something more playful and more malleable. However, my mom has said to me that she finds when she's working with people that they do really want that ritual. They do really find comfort in there being a new ritual. And it depends. I'm going to perform an unbaptism to one of my friends in January. Cool. <laughs> yeah. It's a service that I tell people I offer. I'm like, yeah, I, I do unbaptisms. Let's go. And that's an example where I think that having that be a little more ritualized and a little less playful is going to be very important to the person with whom I'm going, I'm doing that work because it was such a heavily ritualized process to become baptized that to become unbaptized feels like you must go through a very heavily ritualized process. In the day-to-day, in the smaller acts of magic that I share with my friends, I, I find that they actually want something that is fun and playful and chaotic and I kind of have like a boisterous energetic chaotic presence so when people come to me I think that they would be very shocked if I was like all right we're going to do something that looks like Catholicism now (laughs) I think that they'd be like who are you (laughs) go away that's not my friend it sounds like after spending so much time living in an environment where you felt like you had to put on masks and Mm. you couldn't be safe or authentically yourself that you've done a really good job creating a community for yourself that is safe and open and welcoming and yeah I think that that's a very astute point I definitely live in a very very radical bubble I definitely live with the gay agenda (laughs) (laughs) Like, my circle is very much what Republicans are terrified of becoming. Um, (laughs) The gay witch agenda. (laughs) The gay witch agenda. Absolutely. I'm out here. The amount amount of Christians I have converted (laughs) would terrify a megachurch. That's funny. But, you know, it's important because you're providing... Um, a sense of spirituality to people that are searchers just like you are you know uh 2020 really challenged that in me actually um i definitely have am coming out now of a period of dormancy 
uh, I was feeling really separate from my, from my spirituality uh, the last three years with everything going on with the pandemic and the social justice uprising. And it's, it's really hard. You sit and you go like, how can I have done all of this spiritual work to make my life better? How can I have done all of these things and then still be experiencing this great suffering? Mm. I think anybody who practices any form of spirituality has that existential question, right? If there's a God, why does he make us suffer? If my magic works, why is this not going well? Um, and I wasn't asking those on like a one for one ratio. Cause like, I know that that's just not how it works. That the world has lessons for you and some things just happen because they happen and there's not necessarily a reason attached to it, but it was hard. I was, you know, very far away from my art, the further away from my art, the less spiritual I am, the closer I am to my art, the way more spiritual I get and I'm inclined to be. Um, and so when I started working on my film again, I started having these things. Um, uh, so it, you know, I find that it ebbs and it flows and, uh, well, obviously if you think about it in a way that art and spirituality come from the same source, right? The inspiration may come to you as art or it may come to you as a spiritual connection to a higher power, then it kind of has the same source. And Whatever that source is, that's the connection that we reach for when we're encountering challenging times in our lives. Yeah. In in those times in my life, um, I'm, I'm kind of new to the term shadow work. I really like it. I, I like that people say that they have to kind of deconstruct their shadow self before they perform magic to make sure that that magic is having a positive impact on their life. I wasn't raised with that. I was raised instead with a very, very strong fundamentals in Buddhism. And so when I'm feeling less connected to my imaginative spirituality, you know, the, the long form meditations where I'm dropping into altered states of consciousness, I really study Buddhism. I study the teachings of the Buddha. And I don't want to say that I study any one kind of Buddhism. I study a very Americanized version of Buddhism. But, you know, I, I do try to live my life on the Eightfold Path. And I do believe that the Four Noble Truths are true. And I, you know, I read a lot of the Buddhist sermons and I read a lot of Buddhist philosophy and I, and I try to, you know, when I'm feeling an emptiness in imaginative, imaginative spirituality and the more, I guess, Wic Wiccan and Celtic pagan groundings of my spirituality, I, I turn to that. I, I turn to Buddhism. I turn to trying to just be and be okay that I'm just being. <laughs> Easier said than done. <laughs> it sounds so easy when I say it on a podcast, right? And, you know, and then I just read the fire sermon and I go, it's fine. Nah, you know, you're crying. I'm crying. <laughs> so Leah, I'm wondering, as we talk about all these different aspects of your identity that you have come to terms with yeah. or opened yourself up to or realized, how has your family reacted to your process of claiming your authentic self? I I will say... And I actually haven't had this conversation with my mom yet. She's going to hear this on the podcast. I love you, mom. My family is a very supportive family. Like, I'm not the first queer person in my family. I'm not the first trans person in my family. And it was never, I was never like, if I tell my parents this, they're cutting me off. I'm kidding. I never. And they always told me growing up, you know, if you're gay, we'll still love you. <laughs> so I think that they like probably knew a little. They're like, we're taking you to Rocky Horror at 16, but you're straight, honey, if that's what you say. But I will say that they don't fully understand it. You know, they, there is there is some differences in in 
who we are as people that don't allow them to fully understand what it means to be gender fluid, what it fully under, what, what it fully means to be pansexual. You know, I had probably the most supportive family that one could possibly have to come out. And it still took me until I was in my 30s to figure this out about myself. And that's just an experience that they don't have because my, my mom and my dad aren't gay. <laughs> um and and so it, it it's been something that's I've I've had to explore and work with and do more in my friend group and with my chosen family. Um, and yeah, I mean, not having any role models in that aspect of your life that's so important of your identity also explains why it took you so long to come to terms with it yourself. Right, and it's great that you have a supportive family because not everyone is lucky enough to have that. They they very much offer to me that they don't have to understand me to respect me and love me which is wonderful that's everything yeah (laughs) i know i can't complain but i will say yeah having that safe space yeah you know i will say that um they don't know all aspects of my life right now they don't know everything that's going on in my life they come from a generation that in general has a really complicated relationship with sex. I am very sexually liberated. I'm very body positive. The body positive movement was very impactful to me. And that, you know, was very hard for my parents. You know, I was I was doing some activism within the body positive movement, although I stepped away from that because there were a lot of calls for, for that to be more centered on black and disabled bodies. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. 100%. So, but you know, there are pictures of me naked in times square <laughs> that my family is like, why, <laughs> why is this on social media? Leah? And I'm like, yeah, because I need it because I needed to do that. I've posed for some art magazines that they don't know about and listening to this is going to be the first time they hear about it. But that's the beauty of it all, right? That they can uh, respect yeah. you and love you, even though they don't understand your choices. And, you know, I will say, you know, I'm so I'm non-monogamous and I'm I'm married, but I also have another relationship in my life that's kind of brand new. And falling in love again has been really helpful in me coming out of that dormant period of my spirituality. I love Love is magic, man. I mean, like, that's it, right? The, the, the feeling of love. Bell Hooks says that love is the solve for death. And I think that that's so true. Yeah, all you need is um, love. Can you tell us a little bit about how the non-monogamous marriage works between you and your husband? Does he also have other partners? His, his, he's a small business owner. So his other partner is his business partner <laughs> right now. Um, he he owns a company that has three locations and it's in the film industry, which is going through a cataclysmic event, you might be aware. He's welcome to have another partner, but if I would be shocked if he found the time. <laughs> no, our polyamory is great. It's, it's fine. Uh, everybody's like, how is your husband reacting to the fact that you have a new partner? And I'm like, it's fine. Like he's he's known that this is the deal since our first date. Like none of it is shocking. He has known that I had a crush on this person for a while. He has been very supportive of it. It's like fine. Um, and the only the only thing that's weird about it is telling other people. Well, but that makes a difference, right? If you told him from the get go, there's no surprise. You didn't switch something along the way. Yeah. This was agreed upon from the yeah. get go, and people will judge anything doesn't matter if you're polyamorous yeah. straight think- or monogamous or gay you'll always feel the judgment if you allow it right so it's good that you knew who you were and started this relationship with authenticity 
Yeah, no, I knew that I was polyamorous as a, as a form of sexual identity before I knew that I was pansexual or non-binary. It was kind of my first queer identity. And a lot of people say that polyamory alone isn't queer. I disagree with that a lot. Um, I have a very controversial stance that I think being polyamory alone is enough to bring you into the queer community. But I also understand that there's some pretty shitty cishet guys who say that they're polyamorous to get themselves into queer spaces. So like, I understand why that's a complicated and nuanced issue, but it is, it was the beginning of my queer journey. Um, and I've known that about myself for decades or not decades, but for 15 years that, that that was important to me. As we discuss this, I think it's so fascinating because many people have a difficult time wrapping their heads around polyamory in a way that they don't with other kinds of sexual identities, right? And I think a lot of it is because it really undermines this super, super fierce conditioning that we've had in terms of monogamy. And why have we, why have we been conditioned to be monogamous? Because that's how power and mm-hmm. property has been controlled for thousands of years right through this institution of monogamous marriage and the patriarchy it's a real doozy to patriarchy (laughs) it's a real doozy to patriarchy (laughs) and all this conditioning right because love is love this is a really good way to bring it back to to spirituality too the ethos of magic that i was raised on is that the definition of magic is your capacity to love your relationship with your imagination and using meditation to bring those three things together to manifest the life you want, Mm. right? The power of your magic comes from love. And I, I just read bell reread bell hooks all about love. So like, I'm like really in my feelings about this right now. (laughs) It's very top of mind. Um, but love is such a powerful force and it is way more than just romantic love. And we really are, especially in our patriarchal white supremacist Christian society, prescribed a definition for love that does not nurture our spirit. I'm very big on found family, right? Like chosen family is very important. It's very central to a lot of people's queer experiences. And it just made so much sense to me that I love, I have so many best friends that I'm very emotionally intimate with. I had a bridal party of 10 when I got married and all 10 of those people would bury a body with me. (laughs) All 10 of those people, if I was like, I'm in jail, don't ask questions, come get me. They'd be like, heard that on my way. And none of them are jealous of each other. They all met and got along and it was great. So why is romantic love different? Well, it comes down to healthy relationships, right? It totally does. And again, we're taught that um, love can be this zero-sum game, right? Where if I love you more, then I have to love him less, right? Or, you know, things like that. And it's not about possession and it's not about a finite capacity of this beautiful feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I don't engage with and I don't date possessive people. (laughs) I just don't, I won't do it. To your point, our capacity to love can only grow and falling in love has definitely like rekindled a desire in myself to tap into those altered states of consciousness more, read more poetry, engage in literature, which 
always sparks my imagination, which sparks my creativity, which sparks my desire to engage with my spirituality more. Beautiful. Beautiful. Like, oh my God, so gross, so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, when you talk about it, it's pretty amazing because you get to have these wonderful experiences of new love. And, you know, most of us have felt that and it's like nothing else in the world, right? And not only does it, not only do you have this wonderful experience, it helps you tap in your spirituality more. And you have this safe space of your marriage at the same time and your love for your husband and it's not diminished by these new experiences you're having. My question is, um, does your husband share in your spiritual practice with you? And and I love my husband. He has a different relationship with spirituality. He grew up a secular Jew. You know, he, he didn't have a lot of religious faith. And so the spirituality, I share mine with him. You know, he and I do do meditations and stuff, but it's not as big of a part of his life. It's not as important to him. Um, and I love him a lot, but it's not a love that uh, I would say engages that part of my mind as often. Um, and that's okay. Right. Like you're allowed to love different things and different people and have your love inspire different parts of you and nurture different parts of your spirit. Um, but yeah. And also like new love is just, you know, new love. (laughs) What are you going to do? Well, and it seems like your path is all about acceptance. So you also accept that he's not into spirituality and that's okay. You guys are doing your own thing. You know, um, when I hear you talking about all these things that you do that are quote unquote different from the, you know, mm-hmm. most walked path, um, it makes me think that a lot of people probably don't understand. You said that people, it's hard for you to talk about it with people. And I think it probably has to do with the fact that there's this whole idea that anything that doesn't fall within the norm is evil or something to be fearful of but really from what we've discussed all you want to do is spread joy and love and a little chaos i love i love that and i I think i want to bring back because you keep bringing up how a lot of people have this perception that this spiritual path that i live is evil and bad. And I, I would love to speak on that a moment because here's my soapbox, if I may. Soapbox away. The brand of Christianity that dominates American culture worships death. It is all centric to death. Judgment day is coming. Hell is watching. Your sins sit heavy in your heart and you will have to pay for them. Catholicism has rituals that are surrounded on the concept of a corpse and the crucifixes have a dead person on them. We are living our life towards the end in those environments. And fear is used, fear of death is used to wield power over people so that these institutions can maintain their power. And they will be very threatened by forms of spirituality that emphasize life and emphasize life. And that's why it's so scary for new people coming out of those environments to take agency and live life and do things that may feel a little materialistic because in the back of their mind, they're very scared 
of what will happen when they die. And it's a very, very evil way to control peoples to make them constantly fearing the end that they don't participate in the moment now. Um, and I think it's the antithesis to life. I think it's the antithesis to love. And I think it's something that Western society has been struggling with forever. It's why the churches shut down the theaters. It's why dancing isn't allowed in certain Protestant religions. It's why artistic, uh, uh, artistic, it's why artistic expression has to only be about Jesus in certain denominations of Christianity. And that if you like singing too much, it's a sin. If you like self-expression too much, it's a sin because you're going to die one day and then who you are won't matter. You know, they do a really good job of brainwashing people away from somebody like me who's like, no, you get this, you get this life and maybe you get some more on the other end, but we don't know. And it's okay to just care about this one. For sure. And it's important that we, you know, put this information out there and that you're saying this because um, not a lot of people are ready to step out of their blinders or peek out. So it's good to let them know that it's safe out here. We're all doing okay. And um, speaking of power, what makes you feel the most powerful? Oh, that's such a good question. What makes me feel the most powerful? I feel the most powerful when my intentions and my actions are aligned. That's usually in the space of me directing. It's usually when I am a director and I am doing my job, I'm on set or I'm in the rehearsal room or I'm having a production meeting. That's really when my imagination and my words and my actions and my intentions are perfectly aligned. But I can feel it when I'm meditating, not always, but I do. And then I also feel very powerful when my friends empower me. I have a lot of people in my life who, who empower me, who build me up. Uh, so also when I'm feeling loved. The power of love is really like nothing else. It's so important. Love is so important. Just love each other. Oh my God, I sound like a hippie from the 60s, but we need it. It is magic. It truly is magic. And thank you so much, Leah, for bringing the magic and sharing this wonderful conversation with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Leah. And let us know what happens with your project. Keep us posted. I will. I will. I probably talked about it more than I should have on this podcast, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. This is fantastic. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you. Can I do a little outro plug and like plug my podcast real quick? Of course. Go right ahead. Okay. Um, so I've been Leah Faye, all pronouns, and I have a podcast with my mom that you can find. It's called Finding Our Minds, F-I-N-D-I-N-G-O-U-R-M-I-N-D-S, you get your podcasts thanks for listening everybody join us next week when we ascend to a higher plane and talk with alexandra cleric and remember you can listen to all of our old episodes on any platform that streams podcasts